0: Welcome, everybody. I'm Brent Stafford, and this is another segment of Rugwatch on GFN.TV. Those who do battle against safer nicotine products are deeply entrenched within all levels of government regulatory agencies, at universities, in foundations, and at nonprofit health groups. They are organized and well funded, they are a force to be reckoned with. But thankfully, there are those who fight on behalf of adult access to safer nicotine products and few fight more tenaciously than Michelle Minton, senior fellow at the Competitive Enterprise Institute in Washington, D.C. Michelle, thanks for joining us again on RegWatch. It's
1: a pleasure to be here.
0: So Michelle, you're a researcher and a writer for CEI and have been covering issues around nicotine vapes for some time. Tell us a bit about CEI and its mandate and the types of regulatory issues you cover.
1: Well, so the Competitive Enterprise Institute, where I've worked for almost 16 years now, we're really, uh, you know, we're a regulatory uh, think tank. So a shop that focuses on how we can fix the regulatory state to increase people's economic and personal liberties.
0: So uh, when it comes to the kind of regulatory issues, could you describe it as the sin issues?
1: Oh, yeah. My particular wheelhouse, my expertise, for whatever reason, has developed around what we would consider the vice issues, uh, which I include food in that as well, since anything that you could put a syntax on. So that's gambling, um, food, alcohol, uh, substances, including nicotine and cannabis.
0: So essentially you tackle government and government's penchant to save adults from their own choices.
1: Yeah, really whenever the government is trying to come in and uh, do something for your own good, that's where I come in and say, you know, maybe this isn't a great idea for whatever reason.
0: So when government tries to keep you safe.
1: When it's trying to save you from yourself, yeah, and your own choices, that's almost always a bad idea, pretty much invariably.
0: So do you look at these issues mostly then as a liberty issue?
1: Yeah, I try and look at it from a bunch of different perspectives. So I come at it from, you know, I have a, a degree in nutrition, which is a public health field. So I do look at it from the economic side of things, from the public health side of things as well, but but mainly from, from an autonomy perspective, this idea that, You know, you can want to help people and do good for them. And and those intentions can be true and well-meaning, but there's a line that should never be crossed in medicine or I think in life generally, which is when you cross the line into forcing or coercing people into making choices that you think are good for them, even if they think they want to make those choices. Once you cross the line into coercion and force, you are impeding on someone's personal autonomy, which is what makes us human, what's what allows us to live in any sort of free society. And that's, that should just be verboten.
0: So when it comes to say nicotine vapes and all of the debate and regulatory actions around that, have public health and government crossed the line then?
1: They crossed the line a long time ago. And I think back in the nineties that it seemed to be justified. Most people were on board, including even smokers because the science was so clear about how harmful smoking combustible tobacco is. And a lot of people were dependent on it and didn't want to be. And so there was this broad consensus that everything should be done to make sure that the next generation and the generations after wouldn't fall into those same traps. So there was lots of educational campaigns. Those are great. Those did a lot to really um, push young people away from smoking, from even experimenting with smoking. And then there were taxes and warning labels and those, you know, they started to creep up, especially with taxes that's fairly coercive because if you're, you know, if you're a person who's impoverished or you're on the lower end of the economic spectrum, Sometimes, especially if you're dependent on a substance like nicotine and you think smoking is one of the only ways you can get it, that's, that's a severe form of coercion where you're forcing people to choose sometimes between food and a pack of cigarettes. And then in the modern era, it's become even worse, even though we have more choices than ever, safer choices than ever for consuming nicotine, this uh, discussion and the action violating people's autonomy, this idea that just because someone has a dependency, mild or severe, they don't have free will or they have a lesser form of free will. It's very disturbing. It's It's been increasing um, with public health saying, well, we're trying to do it for everyone's good, so it's okay. And I think it's inertia, this, this idea that's carried forward from the 90s, from the tobacco wars, that it's still okay, even though <laughs> it really shouldn't be.
0: In a way, do you think that maybe a bargain has been broken? Some kind of a deal public health and tobacco control was making with smokers as they really laid on heavy the pressure to quit. Now there's millions of people that did quit through vaping, but they find that public health is on them as hard as they were when they were smokers.
1: Yeah, uh, you know, there was a lot of stigma on smokers, a lot of, you know, you have to go out in the cold if you wanna smoke, this should be a thing. If you're still gonna do it, if you refuse to do what we tell you, you have to do it in private, in your home, as long as you don't have kids or live in public housing, where we don't have to see you, we can pretend you don't exist. And then a lot of people, found vaping or nicotine pouches or safer forms of nicotine consumption. Even the patch, in some ways that's still being stigmatized. People are not being hired by certain companies because they're testing positive for nicotine, even though they're wearing a patch or chewing gum. Uh, so this, there's been an escalation in the stigma where it's no longer just smoking because smoking is bad. And we don't, as a society, we don't want this to be an acceptable behavior. Now it's getting down to a level where you're not even hurting society or the people next to you, but we still don't want you to do it. It's a severe form of of groupthink and control about people's private behaviors and any kind of justification that you know people may have raised in the 90s with smoking, secondhand smoke or children see it or et cetera. All of that is obliterated when you're talking about nicotine used through non-combustible sources. But yet, yeah, so there's I think a lot of smokers who've managed to quit via any means that are available to them, they are now faced at a world where they're being re-stigmatized. They felt like, you know, I did what you told me to do. I'm not a bad person anymore because a lot of smokers felt and still feel like they're bad people because they choose to smoke or they have a dependency on smoking. They said, I did it. I did the hard work. I switched to something safer. And then all of a sudden, here comes public health again and the government and uh, these public health groups who are saying, no, you're still bad. You're still doing a bad thing, even though you're not hurting yourself or anybody around you. Uh, so, you know, continue to feel bad. So yeah, it's a, it's a real violation of, of what felt like a deal to a lot of people.
0: Yeah, in a way, it seems that tobacco control and public health don't believe that a smoker is really quit if they're still using nicotine in a vaping form.
1: Yeah, and one of the most, um, the most offensive parts of the conversation is that the conversation is always focused on the industry, you know, and there's a specific reason for this. They want to talk about big tobacco and the tobacco industry or big vape or whatever it is. And they do that because it's a very easy villain and they don't want to be, they don't want to seem to be um, victimizing or villainizing the people who use nicotine, but that's what they're doing. And they do it even more so when they refuse to acknowledge what they're doing and how that affects the people who use nicotine still, whether they're smokers, vapors, nicotine pouch users, whatever it is.
0: Let's turn to the concept of tobacco harm reduction. In your mind, what is it and why is it important?
1: It's really this recognition that you cannot force people to stop using substances. It's the nature of humanity that once a substance is known, its properties is discovered, people will always find a way to access that substance in some form or another. And that the effort to force people not to do it usually has really horrible unintended consequences, both for the individuals and for society. You know, when you're talking about criminalization or illicit markets and then all the crime that goes with illicit markets and cartels, et cetera, and then the loss of tax revenue, whatever it is. And when you approach the issue, if you say, we think this is still a problem, but we're going to approach it through a harm reduction um, lens, what you're trying to do is saying, people are going to use these substances, even though we don't want them to. So what we're going to do is we're going to try and figure out how to structure our policy and our public health approach so that we are pushing people towards the safest forms of use, less use, whatever it is. So with cannabis, for example, that's legalize it, authorize specific dispensaries. So we know that they're only selling to adults, that they're selling products that are safe Uh, with nicotine or with tobacco harm reduction. It's this idea that Human beings have used nicotine for thousands of years. You're not going to get rid of it. But we know that smoking a cigarette, the combustion, the tar, fumes, all of the chemicals that are produced is the most deadly way to consume nicotine. Whereas as you move towards non-combustible approaches like FDA approved um, nicotine therapies or pouches or vaping, you know, there is no combustion, so it's far safer. So policies and our approach should be structured around pushing people away from the most harmful forms of nicotine use towards the safest forms.
0: Considering everything that we've seen uh, happen to nicotine vapes over the last couple of years, is it fair to say that there's a war on vaping?
1: Yeah, absolutely, I think there's a war on vaping and there's a war on nicotine use that's been ramping up. Uh, The war on vaping, I think really, there's always been a bubbling war on nicotine within tobacco control. And that's the movement of public health, lawmakers, whatever it is, who who want to end smoking. There's always been a wing of that movement that was anti nicotine use, not because it was dangerous, but just because they didn't like it. And with vaping, I think that has really galvanized the tobacco control movement and brought up that wing that was just anti nicotine because A lot of the arguments people used to use for smoking don't apply to vaping. They don't apply to non-combustible sources of nicotine. So now it's just become, well, nicotine's addictive. And that's just bad. Even if the addiction doesn't come with anything bad, that's just bad and we don't want people to be addicted.
0: Michelle, one of the biggest arguments that has always been made has been, well, utilizing the precautionary principle. So it almost doesn't matter if there is real harm done, if there's a potential harm. And in this case, everything seems to be wrapped around harm to youth. Um, at the expense of, you know, obviously what adults need. What do you make of the precautionary principle being deployed here? And in the context of the so-called teen uh, epidemic of teen vaping?
1: Yeah, I think the precautionary principle has really been misapplied. uh, And some of the people who are the greatest champions of this idea of, you know, any kind of new technology needs to prove itself to be safe before it can be introduced. Uh, I think, you know, people like Cass Sunstein have talked about how it has been applied overzealously and too far. In that, there is no such thing as certainty. There, is, nothing is perfectly safe. Nothing ever will be. You cannot prove something has zero harms because that's proving a negative. What you can say is, you know, we know for a fact that this thing is less harmful than something that already exists. Something that we literally cannot get rid of, which is smoking. So, are there potential harms to youth? Will more youth start, you know, using nicotine where they wouldn't have? All of those things are real possibilities. The rates of youth experimentation with vaping and what we're talking about is once a month. So that could literally be, I was at a party, I tried a friend's jewel or whatever, uh, and then never did it again. Those are the numbers that we're looking at we say, oh I got it's, it's up to 20%, it's up to 23%. Those numbers have been going down for the last two years. And yes, you know, the pandemic might have something to do with it, but what's interesting is during the pandemic, what hasn't been going down is youth drinking or youth cannabis use. So you're talking about social sources. Um, youth are still acquiring these other things through social sources. There's something else that has changed. And I think it it really, you know, if the panic can be initiated so quickly, one would hope that it can be you know, calmed just as fast. But we're not seeing that. We're still seeing people cite number, numbers from 2017, 2018, because they're scary. And that's a rhetorical political device because they want people to continue thinking about this issue uh, as something to panic
0: about. Let's uh, make a turn here to um, the U.S. Centers for Disease Control in 2019 and the moral panic that was created over the E-Valley, this so-called vaping-related lung illness. What happened there and was it actually something that was real?
1: I mean, that was one of the greatest failures that I've witnessed in public health in my lifetime. And it couldn't have come at a worse time. With the CDC slow rolling the information, they knew very quickly. And I know they knew because I knew, and I knew because I knew the people in the cannabis industry knew that it had nothing to do with e-cigarettes and had everything to do with tainted, illicit THC products that had made it onto the market because some idiots Thought they could cut their um, their weed vapes with vitamin E acetate. They quickly learned that they couldn't do this, and they quickly changed. But those products were already on the market, and CDC should have made it much clearer, much sooner, that that's what it was. But somebody at CDC, either because they were afraid, but I think the, I think the more reasonable uh, assumption is that they wanted to use the outbreak. You know, they wanted to use these tainted products to scare people over e-cigarettes, to scare kids over e-cigarettes. And you know, honestly, that did work. A lot of kids thought, hey, e-cigarettes are killing people, putting them in the hospital. I better not touch these things for a little while. Meanwhile, they had no idea that the actual risk was THC illicit vapes. And most of them still don't know that. And this came right before COVID. So you had a lot of people looking at CDC, people who have who, who are still supporters of CDC and FDA, people who dislike e-cigarettes, want them banned, but they watch the CDC willfully withhold very important life-saving information from the public, and it it engendered a lot of distrust right before the CDC needed it the most, which is when the COVID outbreak happened. It was hard to trust CDC to not do things politically after we just witnessed them do something incredibly politically.
0: Now, in terms of the people and organizations and groups that are leading the anti-vaping effort out of the U.S. and that do have an impact globally, obviously, Michael Bloomberg has to be at the top of that list.
1: Because he has a lot of money, you know, an, uh, an incredible amount of money, but also because he's very passionate about health issues and very dedicated to health issues. He has wielded for many years a lot of power in the U.S. and globally when it comes to how governments approach health issues. Tobacco is one of his main um, gun controls, another one that he cares about. And he's recently gotten into the issue of drugs more broadly, which, you know, that's only in the last couple of years, it'll be interesting to see how that shakes out because one of the things he's invested his money into is drugs harm reduction uh, at Vital Strategies, which I know some of the viewers may recognize Vital Strategies, it's one of the main um, one of the main uh, marketing shops that he's employed on his tobacco issue. So now you have the, this group that has been pushing for bans in India and Indonesia and all over the world when it comes to e-cigarettes and other nicotine products now espousing drugs harm reduction. So it'll just be kind of fascinating to watch how they square the difference between their approaches on these two two topics.
0: Yeah, he's dumped a lot of money into Vital Strategies, has he not?
1: Um, many millions, yes.
0: Is there concern uh, over being able to trust Vital Strategies and their work in this in the tobacco harm reduction area? Like, do they have the credibility that's needed in this space?
1: Um, I you know I don't know how much credibility they have honestly. I, I've always thought of them as as like a lobby shop basically. They're a marketing firm. They're lobbyists. They're very powerful because they have so many people all around the world who work for them, uh, and they you know they funnel a lot of money from Bloomberg. As does, you know, uh, the campaign for tobacco-free kids and the Truth Initiative. Uh, so trusting them, I don't know. I, it's a question of how much influence do the individuals who work at a place like Vital Strategies have over the approach they take, versus, <clears throat> excuse me, versus someone like Michael Bloomberg. From what I've heard and what I understand, um, Bloomberg Philanthropies has an extreme amount of control, uh, a almost inappropriate level of control over the groups that they fund. Where if you don't If you don't do what Bloomberg Philanthropies wants you to do, you are not going to be funded again. So, and, you know, especially if you're talking about groups in third world countries where money for philanthropy, uh, philanthropic money, money for nonprofits is really scarce. That is, that's a significant threat.
0: Michelle, when we last had you on the show about a year ago, uh, you had just come out with an article that was talking about uh, Michael Bloomberg's, how did you frame it? Philanthrocolonialism?
1: the reason i called it philanthrocolonialism is because i see this as part of a long tradition in global public health which is this western perspective on health and how health is controlled through policy and you know the the role that individuals play and communities play in health it's this idea that you know western scientific medical understanding is co- always correct It always has to come from that authority. And then it just gets copied and pasted and applied onto other communities, regardless of what their needs are, what their values are, uh, and, and what their desires are, regardless of the effect that it might have. And we see this, for example, with, you know, Bloomberg philanthropies, Bloomberg is very concerned with vaping because that's the issue in America. And so what Bloomberg has done, if you see what their, you know, what vital strategies, for example, does in countries like India, where smoking is still, you know, 40% of the population in the 30s, maybe higher, depending if you're looking at men or women, they are pushing for bans on e-cigarettes in India, where that is not really an issue. Issue there is combustible smoking. And so you have a Western organization, a, a, a whole mechanism that's operating, trying to copy and paste what they think is valuable in the U.S. onto other communities, regardless of what those communities actually need. And so that's why I called it philanthrocolonialism because this idea that Western authorities, Western physicians tell you what to do. You're too dumb to know what to do. You shouldn't have the right. And, you know, to a degree, the World Health Organization has been doing this for a long time with their tobacco control uh, compacts that they try and get all the countries to sign on to. You know, countries are supposed to be autonomous, just like people. They are the ones who are best suited. You know, they're lawmakers, the people they vote into government if they have the ability to vote people into government. They're the ones best suited to know what their people need, what their people value. So it's pretty problematic when you have someone like Michael Bloomberg looking at another country like the Philippines and saying, I know what's best for you. Just do as I say.
0: Michelle, the Global Forum on Nicotine Conference in Warsaw, Poland, is coming up this June 16 to 18. You're participating on the panel titled Benefits of Nicotine. This is your first time attending in person. Are you excited to go and why is a conference like GFN 22 important? To the tobacco harm reduction effort.
1: I'm so excited. Uh, you know, I've attended in the past, both as a panelist online uh, and just as a guest. Uh, GFN is one of my favorite conferences because of the fact that it's so thoughtfully uh, organized. They really try and bring in a lot of different voices, not just from the scientific academic community, which is important, but also from the consumer advocacy world. And I think those are and I think this is one of the reasons a lot of people like GFN is because you get to hear voices that are so often marginalized or ignored in the conversation, but they, you know, consumers are important stakeholders in the conversation. So yes, I'm, I'm very excited to be attending in person for the first time and to be on a panel that I I think is going to be, you know, very enlightening.
0: Finally, Michelle, if you could give just one piece of advice to THR advocates attending GFN this year, what would that be?
1: I would say reach out to somebody who you think doesn't agree with you and just talk to them. You don't have to try and convince them. Just try and share information with them because that is how people, well, for one, you humanize yourself. They don't just see the industry. You're not just a big tobacco shell or you're not just some you know, nicotine fiend who's trying to defend their addiction. Uh, you're a, a human being who, even if someone disagrees with you, has a right to your opinions and should be heard.